Hello, my name is Phil Dye and you're listening to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers or indeed anyone interested in education. We're based in the Illawarra area of New South Wales, but for teachers everywhere. Um, I'd like to welcome the listeners from the United States because there's a lot of listeners coming in from the USA, from the United Kingdom, Spain and New Zealand. So welcome those listeners. Last week, our program was on the teacher shortage and how to fix it. I interviewed uh, Mark Grant, the CEO of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership, about the problem, because teachers are leaving the profession in droves, and what we can do to fill the gaps that they're leaving. One of the suggestions he made was to have paraprofessionals come in to do all of the busy admin work that a teacher does, um, so that it freed them up to do their real job, which is simply teaching. Um, and that was a great suggestion, the uh, addition of that to, to school staff. Also spoke to some teachers, and uh, the upshot really was that uh, casuals need to be put onto permanent ASAP um, so that they have a permanent job and they have tenure so that they can get a bank loan. The other thought was to fast-track um, uh, teaching for those who have retired or those who have just went and got a, another job and they're looking for something else, maybe they can go back into teaching uh, to fill that uh, void. The casual army that we have throughout Australia and no doubt throughout the world, the casual army of teachers are doing a great job, but there's simply not enough um, to fill the gaps. Now, before we got on to this week's topic, I had a fantastic tweet from a school uh, from Justin and said, my school is seeking a maths department, half of an English department and an entire administrative team. So clearly, those politicians who say there's no shortage of teachers are clearly wrong. This week's topic is inclusion, and I knew it would create discussion. This is not inclusion about colour, race, religion, gender, sexual identity. It is well understood that that's simply accepted and all teachers accept those differences. So diversity in that respect is not an issue in schools in this country. What is at issue is inclusion where those who are included cannot maintain the standards of education that are expected or have a negative impact on the standards of education of others in the school and in the classroom. That is the area of contention that teachers have written to us about. Um, it is nothing to do with colour, race, religion, etc. It is to do with the so-called inclusion of disability. Now, not every disability is the same. We must recognise that. I worked in the disability sector for many years. And what was very clear was that those with a physical disability only were absolutely fine to go into mainstream schools. That wasn't an issue. 
even some areas of disability like cerebral palsy. I was teaching at a school yesterday where there was a, a fellow with cerebral palsy. He was the best in the class, I've got to say. The questions that he raised. Sure, he couldn't get around like everyone else, um, but his ability to maintain the standards of the school was exemplary. But there are some disabilities that need so much extra attention that attention is taken away from other students and therefore they don't get the education that they and their parents deserve. And this is the issue for teachers, maintaining the standards of education that is needed for a student to go into society. I had planned on interviewing Laura Milkins from the Department of Education and Training Inclusivity Unit, and uh, she was the person who oversaw the uh, inclusion statements and the behaviour statements. Now, uh, this was eventually declined. Uh, Very hard to find someone in the Department of Education and Training in the bureaucracy who's an ex-teacher or has experience being a teacher. And the media officer for the DET worked very hard to try and find me someone who was an ex-teacher. But that indicates that there's not many with an education background working in the DET. Um, But we will be interviewing, I'll be interviewing Sylvia Korish, the Executive Director, uh, Student Support and Specialist Programs, later on in the podcast. I also, for this podcast, interviewed Lynn McDougall, the Director of Inclusion and Diversity Services in the Department of Education in Tasmania. I wasn't allowed to record the interview. I simply scribbled everything down. What struck me, though, after interviewing these two people was that there are ideologues and there are pragmatists. The ideologues have an ideology and they follow that no matter what, no matter what the possibility even of having that ideology accepted is. Whereas the pragmatists, unfortunately, their job is to try and um, install the ideology or the policy created by them um, and get it accepted into schools. And they've got a damn hard job. The idealist, the ideologue, will be represented by Lynn McDougall. There's no doubt about that from Tasmania. And if you're a teacher listening in Tasmania, I feel deeply sorry for you. The pragmatist view, Sylvia Korish, um, who had um, experience as a teacher. Um, now, she's based in New South Wales and has the practical view. And we know that her job is pretty hard because there's constant negotiation between the ideologues who create the policy and the pragmatists who are supposedly um, implementing it. But she had this to say, and I'm going to repeat it. (laughs) I'll just give you a slight grab of it about um, what was expected. Violence and abuse in schools has never been accepted and will never be accepted. That's not acceptable behaviour. We need to make sure that our environments are safe for all of our students and all of our staff. Well, there, for those teachers who have um, contacted us and said that they felt unsafe um, and there was threats, there was violence, there was abuse, um, 
I suggest you contact the Department of Education in your state uh, because in New South Wales, Sylvia Corrish has definitively said that that will not be accepted. But again, Sylvia is the pragmatist. She's not the ideologue who's creating the policies. The policies were informed by some research done uh, for the department by JFA Purple Orange, and they delivered a series of focus groups and interviews with students living with a disability and their parents and carers. That's what they did. Um, A total of 81 people, which is not a lot. Uh, Some of those 81 managed to uh, answer the same questions twice, both online and face-to-face. Interestingly, though, they didn't interview um, parents and the students who didn't have a disability. There was none of the, um, the, the other students who were interviewed about their experiences. They only interviewed the parents, carers and students with a disability about how the experience can be improved for them. To me, in public education, everyone has to be interviewed about the experience and making things better, not just one sector. And the, and the big problem is that the attention given to a certain student with an extreme disability may well detract from the education given to those others in the class. Here's a teacher, Rhonda Delaney. At the school I was working out, at, rather, um, of the paperwork involved with the NDIS was, or the NCCD rather, was overwhelming when many of us had more than half of the children in our class on the NCCD. And, and this is a, a bog right. standard school. Right? This is not a school with... Not, not a special school. Not a special school. school. Well, and, and that, did that make a big difference in your class as to the way you had to teach? Yes. It was horribly unfair to the kids who were, in inverted commas, normal. <laughs> That's a horrible word to use. But um, it, in that last year, I had a child, oh, God, I had about four very high needs. Um, including a, a poor little autistic kid that you know, probably would have been better at a school suited to her, but she would run. She would run yep. at provoked, you know, the slightest provocation she'd run. Um, and, oh, gosh. Um, very low IQ kids, um, kids with ADHD. I mean, box standard but severe ADHD teamed with autism. It's not unusual at that school um, to find a, a lot of classes, a third to a half, with children on the NCCD. Now, to be fair, some of those kiddies had you know, anaphylactic reactions to bee stings. So apart from that, they were you know, within normal bounds of intellectual capacity. But, yep. yeah, so when you... As you probably know, when you, when there are several children in your class with very high needs, um, the other kids don't get what they should be getting. Now, I stress again that most students with a disability will be fine in a mainstream class. But as Rhonda Delaney said, that if the disability is extreme or if that disability means constant interruption in a class, uh, for example, a student screaming out, Um, then the other students' education 
is affected. And it's not only classroom teachers. Here's ex-principal Peter Collins. Yeah, and if you've got children with special needs, you know, which, you know, and that's every parent's right to place their children in a mainstream classroom, but if there's a, a child in your class who has special needs and you don't have any support from a teacher's aide or something like that, you know, the interruptions that occur in the classroom are just amazing because the teacher's attention is often having to focus on that child with the special needs. So the students without special needs in the classroom don't get as much attention? Well, their, their time, their shared time between the teacher's time, it becomes reduced, doesn't it? Now, according to Lynn McDougall, the Director of Inclusion and Diversity Services in the Department of Education, Tasmania, um, having a student with special needs is no issue at all. All she said, and I wasn't allowed to record it, but I did write it all down, is that all the teacher has to do is um, write a special program for that individual um, and uh, submit it online. She admitted the system was a bit clunky, uh, submitted online. What she failed to say was the teacher actually then has to implement it. Um, there seems to be a certain blindness going on with ideologues that can't see the reality. And the reality is that these extra layers that has to be uh, have to be done for, completed for every special needs ch child, student in the class, and if you've got many students, that's a lot of work, detracts from the education standards of all of the other students in the class. It is not brain science, you know, that if you give a lot to one thing, something else will suffer. I also asked Lynn McDougall from uh, Department of Education Tasmania about the special schools in that state. And she proudly said that we only have three now. Now, that's three special schools for an entire state. She said that most students are taught in mainstream schools and that 12.5% about of uh, the students in mainstream schools were special needs students. I asked her if she thought that was high. And she said, well, it's lower than other states. I still would think that that's a little bit high. What Lynn probably didn't know was that I had worked in disability services and I worked with disabled people for many years. Uh, I gave her the example that I used to work with a young woman who had 80 seizures a day. Now, that's around about three or four per hour. The seizures were violent, the seizures were loud, and during the seizure, her limbs would completely seize up and go stiff. She was non-mobile, needed to be carried, and uh, a hoist used with her the entire time. She needed to be toileted, changed, and the works. We had two staff members, myself and a female staff member, working with her constantly. She was also blind and could not articulate words. Um, I asked her how this student would go in a mainstream school in Tasmania and Lynn McDougall said yes no she'd be fine and I said well what about the noises that this person would make and interrupt the mainstream class up to four seizures an hour and it, they were visual seizures as well very disturbing to watch and she said well the student would probably find different ways of articulating. I thought, this person does not understand 
extreme disability at all. She then stated that Tasmania was moving away from a medical model. So in other words, if a doctor uh, had examined uh, an individual and found that, wow, these 80 seizures are very painful, they're noisy, they're, this, this student you know, should not be learning about tessellated shapes in a mainstream school, then that was seemingly going to be ignored and the needs of the student, according to the parent, was going to be taken into account with no medical diagnosis necessary. Uh, a parent could actually impute, in other words, without any proof that the child or the student has special needs, uh, get on the NCCD list, and the teacher would then have to write a special program and implement that for that student. Um, now, that seemed rather odd to ignore medical opinion and favour parental opinion. And I honour those parents who have children of special needs, but there are some parents who don't have a realistic view of their child's abilities. Now, before we have a brain break, I want to draw attention to uh, one of the comments that was included in the Review of Evidence-Based Practices conducted by the University of New South Wales and commissioned by the New South Wales Department of Education. Um, and here, actually, in that review, it states that, furthermore, there is growing recognition highlighted especially by people with disability that any practice used to support people with disability needs to be not only evidence-based, it also needs to have social validity. It goes on to say, the concept of social validity measures the overall acceptability of an intervention beyond treatment effectiveness. This can be done by asking opinions about the practice of the people who are implementing, receiving and consenting to it. It seems that the research has been done with people who are receiving and consenting to it, but the teachers who are supposed to implement it have not been adequately surveyed on this and their opinions and feelings taken notice of. Um, teachers, of course, will uh, find that inclusive education for the disabled is fine, but there are some areas of disability that can cause disruption, uh, behaviour problems and lower the standards of education, safety for students and teachers and overall school culture. Now, time for a brain break. Brain break is a piece of music that lets us relax a little bit and then come back refreshed. And today's Brain Break is from a, a fantastic band around the Illawarra called Love and Able. It's a bit heavier than our normal Brain Breaks. Uh, Love and Able, and their song is called, and I thought it was appropriate for this episode, Be Gentle With My Mind. Come on. 
And that was banned from the Illawarra Love and Able. Just find them on Spotify by looking up Love and Able. Now, earlier in the podcast, we heard the view of Lynn McDougall, the Director of Inclusion from uh, Department of Education Tasmania. That's the ideological point of view. Now we're going to listen to the more pragmatic point of view from Sylvia Korish, the Executive Director, Student Support and Specialist Programs from the New South Wales Department of Education and Training. And I began by asking Sylvia to take us through her teaching and education background. Okay, I'm a, I'm a public school student. I was educated through the public school system. I um, my first initial I was a I'm a teacher trained teacher primary school teacher and did a variety of different positions I was a consultant what they were called a consultant in those days I've been in in every primary school executive position uh, very um, AP deep level of two schools and then I became corporate level so um, director in, in a variety of different parts of New South Wales and now I'm executive director of student support and specialist programs. I continued my tertiary qualifications through part-time while I was teaching and running schools and being a principal, and I completed my PhD many years ago now, but I did it on um, parent choice of school. Okay. And Sylvia, how long is it since you've been in a mainstream classroom teaching? About five weeks. <laughs> really? That's very good. So so you were in a, well, a classroom but, teaching but, the kids, yeah? Yeah, let me too. I, I, my last time I was a principal in a school was um, 2005. But in that time, after that, I've been in a variety of different roles where I directly line managed principals. So I was in schools all the time. I did a fair bit of teaching in that. We used to have programs where you would go in and, and teach to make sure that we remain grounded of what happens in classrooms. Um, the research for this program indicated, and we interviewed, there were 73 respondents, that only 42% of teachers had read or familiar with the behaviour and the inclusion policies. Can you take us through how these policies are developed and how they're going to be implemented? We have a policy arm and an operational arm. So if you like, on the, on the operational side, I'm the side that provides the um, the staff and the personnel that go into schools, work with teachers closely in their classrooms, provide advice, provide support. The other arm of the department is a policy arm. Now, as you would know, policy and, and practice have to work very closely together. So so the what's happening now is the department is introducing a, a schools package called the Inclusive, Engaging, Respectful Schools Package. It has three policies that link closely together, and that was one of the rationales for introducing at the same time. It has um, the inclusive education policy, uh, student behaviour policy and procedures, and it has restrictive practices. So the one about inclusion is about ensuring that um, we continue to be even more inclusive for our students. Uh, so that one of the goals of Department of New South Wales Department of Education, one of our strategic goals is for every child to be known, valued and cared for. I'd like to add every child is known, valued and heard as well. And also every staff member is known, valued and cared for. So inclusive education is, is not new to all of us. It does rely on some new policies and procedures. Um, however, we as a system are very inclusive. We accept children from all different parts of the state or different backgrounds. And we need to work with them to make sure that they are more included in our policies and procedures. And how were these policies developed? Yeah, so they have, in terms of when the policy was developed, there were some focus groups run, staff were interviewed, um, 
we, uh, in terms of departmental stakeholder engagement, talk to principals associations, talk to the teachers' federation, talk to the Aboriginal education consultative groups, and talk to staff as well. So, so, so you mentioned that it was inclusion also for staff. That the staff were going to be um, heard in this as well. When the policy was being um, written and being reconsidered, all of those various stakeholder groups were engaged with. Okay, so um, I I understand that for the inclusion policy, there was a, there was only eighty one respondents that answered the um, questionnaire. And was there any interviews with parents of non-disabled students or with the non-disabled students themselves? So this particular inclusive education policy is for students with a disability. That does not mean we're not inclusive for every young person in our system, but this has been a focus on children with disability. In the research that we've done for this program, um, questions of race, religion, uh, sexual preference, um, all of that, that doesn't come into it. And, and that's not a concern for teachers at all. What is the concern is that um, while some students with disabilities are absolutely fine in a mainstream classroom, there are some disabilities that make the student um, <laughs> react badly to a mainstream classroom situation, uh, not because of anything that they're meaning, it's because of their brain chemistry, uh, because of certain things that they may have been born with, and they're simply not suitable to a mainstream class or school situation. What do you say to that? Um, so it would depend on how the particular student is, is acting out, if you like, Phil. If there are a student with particular behaviour needs, uh, may, maybe they are um, better better. Um, catered for in a, in a school with certain sort of parameters but also we will try and mainstream when when we can and when we think that's the best ne- best place for that particular student that's where the balance comes in isn't it it's about are you is it the right thing for that child to be in that class and if and if whatever you're doing is still not making that young um, person that young adult that young student being able to manage in that sort of social environment then maybe it is time to look at other other uh, environments where they might be more settled and more secure and feel safer, for example. So, you know, it is very much about the individual child. Phil, it's, it, we can't stereotype it. I agree. There are some young people that are much more settled and, and um, feel more secure in a different sort of environment, and, and it's not the mainstream setting. It's a different type of setting. It's a smaller class. It's a different type of school with a different different way of operating. Absolutely. I was teaching at a school today um, and there was um, a student there with cerebral palsy who was in a wheelchair. But wow, the questions that that student asked were fantastic. There was no behaviour issues whatsoever with that student and most certainly deserved to be there, needed to be there. Um, But there are some students that really are causing teachers difficulties um, and making those teachers feel unsafe. So would they be the sort of student who maybe go into a, a, a different school, a special school? So let's, um, let's talk about, you know, one of the things that the department does is that we provide integration funding support. So if you have a child and, and you know that you need some additional support, we are able to give you some funding to help you cater for the needs of that child. What we find sometimes happening... Um, feel is that parents, particularly of young children, 
we need to give, sometimes we need to give um, kindergarten children, for example, more time to settle into school. So we need to make sure that we do provide an environment for that uh, younger child to um, see what happens in mainstream before a decision is made that maybe a support class is, is the right place. So we're looking at a whole range of different options for different students and, and I can certainly give you some experiences from, from me as a teacher or as a principal about where we persevered, we persevered and we persevered and, and we were able to get this particular student settled and into our um, organisation and being able to manage within our school. Don't don't get me wrong, it takes a lot of work and a lot of creativity and a lot of people thinking, we haven't tried this yet, let's try that. But there are certainly times too when you say, we've tried everything and we just think that this child is better catered for in this different type of environment and we'll try that well another reason for teachers leaving the profession or actually the main reason for teachers leaving the profession is the amount of administrative work that they're now expected to do will this uh, the inclusion and behavior policies actually lower the amount of paperwork or will it mean just a, a whole lot of extra admin work that, that a teacher has to do so the department uh, for many years now has been quite serious at looking about the, the admin layer, the admin burden, what it, what it, what is necessary, what isn't. Um, and in my particular, um, where I, my, you know, operationalising uh, these areas, I need to make sure that we don't want to add administrative burden. You know, to be quite, quite honest with you, Phil, if I'm a classroom teacher, or if I'm the principal of a school, I want my teacher's attention to be focused on what they're bringing to those young people every day. Um, sure, there has to be a balance of paperwork. Sure, you know, I mean, as a as a teacher, my program was was my bible. That's how I taught, and of course, I did reports, and I, of course, I wrote, um, you know, reports on particular things and student reports. So there is a certain level of administration that, that is necessary, but we are working hard to make sure that we don't create additional layers of um, admin that may or may not be beneficial to the eventual outcome for this young person. So it's a balance. It's always a balance. When I spoke to Paul Martin from Nessa, he didn't know what the NCCD requirements were. He said it wasn't his area. Um, so perhaps the the paperwork from from Nessa and the paperwork from the NCCD uh, that needs to be analysed and perhaps a happy medium found. Would would that be the case? Well, this is where the department comes in, I think, because a, a principal's desk or a teacher's desk is where everything lands. So every uh, every particular person might say, oh, my program doesn't have too much admin, but when you add it on to all of the other pieces of admin that come together, that's where the department over the last few years has been very serious about having a look at how all those um, things, those planets align, if you like, and, and which areas can actually be um, modified or changed. And again, Paul, Paul Martin is, um, has NESA. That's not my area of responsibility either. But I'm sure that um, he would be working on areas where he could reduce the admin burden for teachers in that space as well. Some teachers are saying that up to 50% of the students in their class uh, are on the NCCD list. Uh, that seems like a lot. Um, and therefore, that's a lot of extra paperwork that they have to fill out. Um how often do you find that there are classrooms like this? Is this, is this something that's becoming more common? When, you, when you're a teacher and you have a look at a class, you may not be able to say that child has X 
and, and you know, you don't want to labour the child, but you know that there's something not quite right. They don't. You need to make adjustments for that particular child. I, I think that's what what's happening over time is that as we become more attuned to that process, we realise that we make lots of adjustments for the children in our class, regardless of whether they actually have a diagnosis or not. And that if you've got a child uh, in your class that you know likes to prefers to enjoy these reading these sorts of books or prefers to learn through this particular way, as a teacher you make those adjustments. So. Um, that wouldn't necessarily surprise me. I know that most of our children with a diagnosed disability are in mainstream settings, but there would be many, many children that we make adjustments for. And I, and I think it's a positive that the system, be it the federal government or the state government, recognises that, you know, that's part of your um, skill set as a teacher in recognising that there are children that have needs, have particular needs and need certain adjustments. And with that comes additional funding sources, um, and that's been happening over time. And what percentage of students in mainstream classes would have special needs? Depends on your, depends on your definition, um, Phil, but we, we know that 96%, 96% of our children with a, with a diagnosed disability are in mainstream settings. If a teacher is abused or uh, spat on, for example, from a student who's who is not coping, uh, but they're not. It's just the way they are. For example, it's the brain chemistry of that individual student. Does the disability excuse the behaviour? No, it doesn't. And we we never ever agree to abuse or violence for our teachers or for other children. So we need to make sure that everyone in that environment feels safe, whether it's the other children in the class, the child themselves, because they may be at risk of serious harm to themselves, but also the staff members. No, it's not acceptable, but you also need to understand that there may be, it needs to be considered. I mean, you know, with um, children, there are certain um, behavioural things that they do as they're growing up and, and maturing. So a child who's a preschool child may behave quite differently to a child who's um, two years older and, and behaves in a certain way. And that's why principals and teachers um, need to understand and to look at, is this a behavioural thing? Is this something that we need to help this young person learn how to, how to uh, manage their frustration or is it something that yeah. we can Is do? it possible? Is it possible, is it to, possible? to alter yeah. this? Yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, and I'm sounding a bit like a broken record, but it really depends on the child. For some children it is, um, and for other children it's it's much harder, and a different environment, a different setting might be the way to go for that particular case. And just look, finally, there is, uh, in my reading of the policies, it seems that parents can impute that they their child has a disability without any medical uh, proof of that and still be on the NCCD list. Is is that correct? Uh, I think it depends. It depends on your, your, again, Phil, it depends on your definition. I mean, there might be a child that has adjustments, that needs adjustments. They may not have a diagnosed um, disability, but we also know that there are parts, there are parts of our community and parts of the state where it's really difficult to get your child to a situation, get them to a specialist or to pay for a specialist or to and in the meantime, a school has to do something about that, that young person. Uh, you don't just keep saying, well, they don't have that issue. They don't have that issue. We're not going to do anything about it. So, um, no, we do, we do gather information from a whole range of different people. It's not just the parent saying, 
Uh, and this is where some of the conversations get a bit tricky because sometimes parents will see things around their children that others may not necessarily see. And sometimes a teacher or perhaps a medical professional can see things that the parents don't see. In researching for this episode, I read everything I could, including the Disability Discrimination Act of 1992 and the revisions to that act that have taken place since then. And in the education section, there is no exemptions for educational institutions. If someone with a disability, no matter how, um, if that person is violent or abusive um, due to certain brain chemical uh, imbalances, they cannot say no. They cannot exclude that student. However, in sport, there most certainly is. So in sport, the exemption is that if the person is not reasonably capable of performing the actions reasonably required in relation to the sporting activity, then it's okay to exclude them. That is not discrimination. It's not called unlawful discrimination. So there's another subparagraph as well, that if uh, the person who persons who participate in the sporting activities are selected by a method which is reasonable on the basis of their skills and abilities. So if you're selected on your skills and abilities to go into the Wallabies, uh, but other people can't do it, well, it's okay to exclude them. Now, 95% of people with a disability are fine in a mainstream school, but the other 5%, because of their skills and abilities, of which they have no control over because of perhaps brain chemical imbalances or um, extreme physical disability, like the woman I mentioned who had 80 seizures a day, it is unlawful discrimination to exclude those individuals from a mainstream school. Now, I will argue that schools, like the Wallabies, have standards that they have to live up to. Their standards of behaviour, their standards of education, their standards of safety for other students and for teachers. And in order to maintain those standards, sometimes students need to be excluded in favour of a special educational platform, a special school. And another interesting thing I read in the uh, Disability Discrimination Act is that it is only the minister who can control and regulate student discipline in government schools, and it's only the minister who can change policies. So we may think that this is embedded, but it actually isn't quite embedded. The minister can have a say and regulate um, the policies that teachers have to work by. This week, we've heard from Lynn McDougall, the Department of Education in Tasmania, um, who put her point of view, not directly recorded, but I had written it down, um, where everyone was to be included, no matter the disability. Then we have the pragmatist Sylvia Koresh from the New South Wales Department of Education, who was very definite about the need to uh, maintain special school environments. This hasn't been an easy episode, but I think we've learned a couple of things from it. Next week, we're going to look at the HSC and the equivalent in all other states, Year 12 
and the amount of work that a Year 12 student does, is it realistic and is it necessary in today's world? But I thought I would let a teacher finish off this discussion on inclusivity. You've been listening to Marking the Role. My name's Phil Dye. Thanks for listening. So many little kids are just delightful and and they want to learn. And and they, they do right 97% of the time. And and unfortunately, they because they're the quiet ones, they get missed because you're, you're worried about the ones that are going to flip out and throw the chairs off all the desks or, 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 or spit or bite or... Or, 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 it's just sad. There's room in the world for all of these people, but I, I always just felt sorry for those kiddies that just came. I'm just thinking of a kid in particular who's just a beautiful little girl, bright, bright, but just never got enough time for me because I just, I just couldn't.